2: Does money always buy you safety and security? No. Does money buy you true love and compassion or empathy? answer is no. Does money buy you intuition, insight, creativity, higher vision, transcendence? No. Money does buy you pleasure, and pleasure is good, but it's not enough. We need fulfillment.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Not Perfect Podcast, a show that explores the mind, soul, science, and health as we speak with world leading experts each week. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best selling author, entrepreneur, and happiness researcher. Life is not straightforward, so join me as we navigate being human together and become what I like to call flexible thinkers. I believe that curiosity and education is the route for more happiness, love, connectedness, and the doorway to unlocking your unlimited potential. I hope you join me on the journey. Today's podcast is with someone who I admire so greatly. It is but a dream come true to have Deepak Chopra on the Not Perfect podcast. The first book I read of Dr. Chopra's was The Seven Laws of Spiritual Success in my early 20s, and it was truly life-changing to me. Deepak Chopra is a complete legend. He is the author of over 90 books translated into 43 languages. He has changed the lives of millions of people through his literary work, his speeches, his app, his meditations, the Chopra Foundation, and many more outlets, as he has led the forefront of the health and well-being and consciousness movement. Time Magazine has described Dr. Chopra as one of the top 100 heroes and icons of the century. His latest book, Abundance, is truly brilliant. I finished it within a day, and it was like a bath for my soul and mind. I genuinely finished the book feeling so much more abundant than when I started. Life suddenly was 10x what I had considered it to be before, and the change happened just through my process of reading this book. The subject of money and spirituality is a tricky one to navigate, but this book clarifies the true meaning of money, desire, and what it means to live abundantly, and how to start thriving in every area of your life. What is a favorite quote you turn to often and why?
2: Our life is a dream. We are asleep. But once in a while, we wake up enough to know that we are dreaming. That's from the German philosopher, Wittgenstein.
1: And why did you choose that quote? And why do you often return to that one?
2: Because as I look across the world, I see people sleepwalking to extinction right now with war, terrorism, eco-destruction, extinction of species, poison in the food chain, pandemics, mass migrations, mechanized ways of death, this is living a life that is unawakened. When you wake up from this, uh, what I call bamboozlement of the conditioned mind that has been going on since medieval times, we have not evolved emotionally or spiritually since the Middle Ages, but now we have modern capacities that spell extinction. Biologists and anthropologists and uh, other people who understand the workings of nature, they say, if insects disappeared from our planet, uh, all life would cease in five years. On the other hand, if humans disappeared, all life would flourish in five years. We would return to the Garden of Eden and the state of grace. So we're at a crossroads right now. Either we wake up or we sleepwalk.
1: Extremely powerful. And thank you so much for sharing a quote that has so much meaning and couldn't be more relevant especially given the world events that are unfolding at this moment in time. What is a recent life lesson you've been reminded of?
2: Well, during the pandemic, it was very clear that there were certain people who found even the pandemic uh, uh, to be an opportunity technologies like the one we're using right now, Zoom, RNA, discoveries of RNA vaccines. Uh, The future will, as a result of the pandemic, we'll be able to see vaccines for chronic illness, autoimmune illness, cancer. So many people actually found opportunity in the midst of adversity. Also, as our own foundation looked at the data, of who was getting sick, Uh, the elderly and the young one, there was a common factor, stress, anxiety, depression and inflammation. The younger people were getting what are called inflammatory storms and the older were getting low grade inflammation along with anxiety and depression. And what we found is that if you stimulate the vagus nerve through either chanting or deep breathing or singing or ballet or yoga or martial arts, or actually if you shift your diet to a diet that has maximum diversity in plant-based foods, you override the inflammation, the sympathetic overdrive. And people who are doing that actually through our meta-analysis, which means computer analysis of all the research, actually did not succumb to the disease as other people did. So lots of things to learn in the last two years.
1: Absolutely. And I feel like your book touches upon how we can create abundance even in those scenarios where we feel like we are facing adversity. And of course, the discovery of how important vitamin D is for all of us, I feel like was one of the great learnings I definitely took from that too. How do you understand the soul?
2: The best way to understand the soul is that it is um, an aspect of universal awareness or consciousness. So your body is in your soul, not the other way around. When people say somebody died and their soul left, no, the body leaves as a perceptual activity. The soul is non-local, which means not in space-time, which means eternal. Eternal not means doesn't mean endless time. It just means outside of time, outside of space-time. Once we get in touch with this soul, and understand the mechanics of how we perceive everyday reality, then that gives us freedom to actually participate in the creation of infinite versions of reality. What we are experiencing right now is a lucid dream in a vivid now that is a result of the conditioned separate mind, as I said, going back to the dawn of history 40,000 years ago. Once we understand the mechanics of this, then the soul allows us infinite freedom to be the producer, the director, the choreographer, the villain, the protagonist, the musician of our own story, whatever we want it to be. There's nothing more important than getting in touch with the soul. It's not your mind. The mind is an experience in the soul.
1: One thing I particularly loved about your book is you actually give a guide and you have about maybe 10 questions about how you actually can uncover the true soul, uh, which was a term I was so unfamiliar with. And I went through those questions and I found so much insight. But before we dive into really the true soul, I want to begin by asking you why you wrote this book, because you've written over 90 books. And so... You could obviously put your feet up and live in bliss forevermore, but you don't. And so obviously this had to have come from such deep inspiration for you to want to get it out there. And I wanted to start with why.
2: Actually, uh, after I heard a song or a lyric from Bob Marley, the line was, some people are so poor, all they have is money. So I started <laughs> to investigate this idea. It does money always buy you safety and security. No. Does um, money guarantee transformation and uh, power, self-power, not agency power? Answer is no. Does money buy you true love and compassion or empathy? Answer is no. Does money buy you intuition, insight, creativity, higher vision, transcendence? No money does buy you pleasure and pleasure is good, but it's not enough, we need fulfillment. So what I did was I looked at the wisdom traditions, particularly what is called Tantra, which is misunderstood in the West. You know, it's I actually pronounce Tantra, Tantra, Mantra, Yantra, they are meditation practices, they're rituals that activate the seven centers of awareness, that are the junction point between what we call consciousness and our biology and the physical world. So these uh, activation of chakras, which is part of the book, is a ritual that goes beyond the mind. It actually activates the soul at these levels of fulfillment. These levels of fulfillment were also uh, indicated in the work of Abraham Maslow, although he stopped with self-actualization. But if you look at his notes, Before he died, he was going all the way to the seven chakras, didn't get time to complete that. But his hierarchy of needs is a pretty good map also, not as complete as the one that I introduced in the book, which is not mine, it's ancient.
1: I know I really, really enjoyed going through each chakra and also for everyone who's listening Um, Deepak includes such practical exercises in order for you to help you kind of get in contact and get in touch with each chakra. So, what is the purpose of money and what is the difference between being abundant and rich?
2: Okay, this is a very important question because, you know, people usually associate spirituality with lack of money. It's part of many religious traditions as well. On the other hand, the Wisdom of Tantra and of the ancient Eastern wisdom traditions, Vedanta, which is what I explore, they say that the four goals of life are dharma, which is life purpose, artha, which literally means money, literally means money, artha, material success, kama, kama not as in karma, kama as in kama sutra, which means sensual delight in all the five senses, And moksha, which means freedom from suffering. So those are four goals of life, and there's nothing to feel guilty about for making money. In fact, if you feel guilty about money, then you'll never make money, number one. That guarantees poverty consciousness. Having said that, money is the exchange of values. We call it currency. Uh, We also call it exchange, the stock exchange. You know, what's the currency today? What's the value of the ruble today? So what is money? It's the exchange of values and the exchange of services as well and products, but based on values. Long time ago, before we invented money, it was simpler, you know, you just bartered. I'll give you a haircut and you give me a few eggs uh, or something like that. I'll fix your shoes. And uh, you know you can give me your spring chicken today, or something like that. But that, of course, became inconvenient. So then we created the shells and copper and coins, and ultimately paper money, and now digital money. But it's still the same; it's the exchange of values. The reason I introduced the soul profile in page ten of the book is that once you know your values then you connect with people of similar values. And that's how you exchange values through currency. You can make a lot of money. It doesn't matter what your values are. If somebody's values are alcohol, cigarettes, pornography, they can go to Las Vegas and exchange their values with those people and they'll still make money. I wrote the book. So you can make money by exchanging your Spiritual values, your soul values.
1: I think it's so, and you repeat this throughout the book. This idea of change can only happen with awareness. So I thought it was just so clever to include all these questions to actually provide the reader some awareness of what they truly believe is money.
2: Yes, you know, the, the awareness, soul profile, values go together. It's not your bio, which you can find in LinkedIn or something like that bio is what other people think of you your credentials where you went to school how much money you made in the last job uh, your references so it's all about self image it's not about your true self now self image is important but and right now you know the world has kind of sacrificed their self for their selfies uh, and uh, so we think we are our selfies we don't know who the deeper self is And that was the intention in this book. You can only change that what you're aware of. But first, you should not know what awareness is. And awareness is, as we mentioned earlier, the soul.
1: One of the questions you ask readers is, what are their three heroines and heroes as part of one of the guides to tapping into the true self? And so I was writing out mine, but I wanted to ask you who were your three heroes and heroines?
2: Well, I have many. So, you know, I mean, from the great spiritual traditions, Jesus Christ, Buddha, Rumi, the great Sufi poet, and in recent times, Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Mahatma Gandhi, Uh, I could go on and on, Joan of Arc, (laughs) many.
1: Many. Many. Do you then encourage people to hold this list close? And why did you choose to ask? Why is it important to know who your heroes and heroines are? And I know that sounds like a simple question, but it is interesting.
2: Yeah, so the heroes and heroines are actually encapsulated mythical uh, stories of greatness. And so if you can uh, look at these heroes and heroines, uh, in history, mythology, or religion as your mentors, then you learn from their life, but you also can embody them. You can have them incarnate through you, which is part of the rituals of Tantra. Not only learn from your heroes, you embody their consciousness, so you become who they were.
1: And you move on to talk about Dharma, which I actually think probably a lot of people will not be familiar with. So would you mind sharing, what is Dharma? And again, why do you think there are so many challenges in our modern day world in tapping in or understanding what our personal Dharma is and identifying this true self?
2: So, you know, Joseph Campbell in his books uh, used the phrase, follow your bliss. How do you follow your bliss? You follow your bliss by finding what your life purpose is. And if you're basically using your life purpose to serve other people, then it's not work anymore. You lose track of time. So when you're following your bliss, you're following your dharma, there is no time. Your vocation and your vacation are the same thing, as the American author uh, Mark Twain said. My vocation and my vacation are the same thing. There's no time involved. So on a superficial level, you could ask yourself, if I had all the money in the world, and if I had all the time in the world, how would I express my unique skills and talents? And who would benefit? That's your dharma. But ultimately, dharma is much bigger than that. It's not only your life purpose, but how you fit in, with the elements and forces of the universe. And ultimately, the dharma for all of us is to surrender to the divine mystery that is within us. The mystery can't be solved. And if I ask you, why is there existence? There is no answer. Why amongst 2 trillion galaxies, 700, 6 trillion stars, and uncountable planets, This little speck of dust in the junkyard of infinity that we call planet Earth, we have a species that actually knows how to connect with the infinite mystery even without solving it. That is ultimate dharma, to surrender to the mystery. Once you surrender to the mystery, life flows. There's, you know, you are supported by what in the book I chose to call generosity of spirit. It's infinite. The generosity of spirit is infinite. There's no limitation to it. No no lack of abundance.
1: I found it so deeply refreshing how you talk about desire. Because again, desire and money can feel so ugly. You know, there are religious doctrines out there that almost kind of create some guilt around this idea of desiring. And it was actually quite liberating uh, the way that you address desire and it being linked to karma. And I'd love for us to kind of discuss this.
2: Desire is pure consciousness seeking manifestation. So we call awareness, consciousness, our soul. But if the soul didn't manifest his mind, body, and the experience of the universe, what's the point? So it is the nature of consciousness to be conscious. And it begins with desire. So there's a phrase in the Upanishads, you are what your deepest desire is. As is your desire, so is your intention. As is your intention, so is your will. As is your will, so is your deed. As is your deed, so is your destiny. So you shape your destiny through desire. Now, of course, In the beginning, the desires are all selfish. It's all about me and mine. But as you fulfill the desires, then it becomes, oh, how can I help other people? How can I make other people happy? How can I bring success to other people? And then you slowly realize that the fastest way to be successful is to make other people successful. And the fastest way to be happy is to make other people happy.
1: Just, just, I just love it. There was one like particular nuance point that you said, you know, the universe wants to give you everything you want, but you don't get the things that are not in your karma, for example. Because again, this word of manifestation, I do feel has been like heavily diluted by like the wellness industry in many ways. And I want to address this and bring in your point of fantasy thinking. This really got me thinking a lot reading this book because... There's a lot of encouragement in popular culture to kind of, especially maybe driven by the American dream, to dream, have this wishful thinking, have this fantasy thinking. You can be whoever you want to be. But at what point is that fantasy thinking, which then leaves you deeply disappointed and actually something that isn't aligned with true self? And so, what is desire and service of our Dharma, of our karma, and what is desire and wanting to manifest greatness when it strays into fantasy thinking?
2: So, um, you know, much of the new age uh, thinking about so-called law of attraction is very narcissistic. And (laughs) it's a kind of dilution of the original intention that uh, inherent in consciousness is manifestation, just like there's a phrase in the ancient text, just as inherent in air is movement, so inherent in consciousness is manifestation. So uh, manifestation is not through the mind, which is much more ego-driven, and that's the whole law of attraction as it's usually portrayed. Here is the basic understanding. If you follow your dharma, you're not only serving the needs of the people and the uh, idea is that the universe is like a big jigsaw puzzle and there are no spare parts no spare parts whatsoever everybody fits so once you find out how you fit then you follow your bliss and in helping others you also create abundance for yourself that's a byproduct and the karma part is called love in action So love without action is irrelevant and action without love is meaningless. But when you have love and action combined, then that's called karma yoga. And yoga means union with the divine in you, which is the divine in everyone.
1: Before we return to more wisdom, I have a little gift for you. I've partnered on this episode with a product I use every day, AG1 by Athletic Greens. I started taking AG1 because in just one scoop, you are absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics and adaptogens. It's definitely very green, but with a squeeze of lemon or in a smoothie, it's perfect. I've noticed my energy levels rise and I feel much clearer mentally. It's a small micro habit with big benefits. So if you'd like to try it too, then excitingly, Athletic Greens are going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D, and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash notperfect. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash notperfect to upgrade your health and pick up the ultimate daily immune-boosting energy-upgrading scoop. Hold
0: up.
1: patterns influence our karma. And I find research around habits absolutely deeply fascinating. And you shared a great fact that 2% of dieters are successful after two years, which I definitely sadly fall into the um, 98%. How do we break our habits? And how do we become more aware of the unconscious patterns driving our life?
2: You know, habit, conditioning and karma, the same thing It's the recycling of old experience and not only the recycling of old experiences the recycling of what used to be pleasure which now has become painful that's how you define addiction it's used to be pleasure but now it's painful but you're still recycling it out of habit because you're unconscious about it. One of the ways to actually uh, overcome that is to make a habit, another habit, which is before you react to any situation, circumstance, or event, you just press the pause button and observe your reaction to react. That's it observe your reaction to react. Uh, the great Indian philosopher J. Krishnamurti said, the highest human intelligence is to observe yourself without judgment. So if you can observe your patterns without judgment, you break the circuit. That's one thing. I also frequently use this formula, which I call stop formula. S stands for stop. T stands for take three deep breaths and smile from your head to your toes. O stands for observe the sensations in your body, and P stands for proceed with compassion and awareness. So these are little tricks, but the ultimate way to go over habit is actually go to deeper awareness through meditation and mindfulness practices, and also through observing the choices before you make your choices, observing experience before you react to the experience. Just a small, You know fraction of a second to break the circuit but ultimately you live in a state which is pure awareness all the time which is pure creativity all the time so the opposite of habit or karma is creativity it's not good karma or bad karma those are judgments you know karma is just an echo from the past you did something and then you made a choice and that choice has repercussions every choice creates the future. So you might as well create the future consciously. And these are the ways you do it.
1: So what are your thoughts of this idea that we have this set destiny? Do you think that actually we have more free will um, within that?
2: So the answer from the wisdom traditions is both. If you're unconscious, then you have a karmic destiny. It's called kismet. But if you are aware, then you have infinite freedom. So in between, there's a range. So one age range, extreme is addiction. A little better than addiction is preference. A little better than that is intention. A little better than that is subtle intention. And the ultimate is choiceless awareness where the right response comes to you for every situation as it occurs. That's infinite freedom. So you have both. It's a, it's a spectrum depending on how awake you are.
1: And you probably have slightly touched upon this, but I just thought it was such a beautiful way you summarized. And you said, you know, try to be aware of your problem at the level of the solution. And I read this over and over and over again, thinking to myself, okay, I I understand at this kind of like soul level, but I would love to break that down. How do we become aware of our problems at the level of the solution?
2: So the, the solution is not at the level of the problem. It's a little bit higher than the level of the problem. Because if it was exactly the same level, then it would recycle the problem. So let's talk about, you know, the basically uh, let's rephrase that in terms of biological terms. The most primitive response to a situation that seems threatening is called the fight-flight response. And so in order to override the flight pride response, you need something called the achievement response. Instead of reacting right now, how can I change this adversity into an opportunity? Better than even the, uh, what we call the achievement response is something called the restful awareness response where you're putting the pause button and just resting in the awareness before you respond. A little higher than that is the intuitive response the intuitive response is not a rational thing it actually is more contextual more relational more holistic doesn't have a win-lose orientation or eavesdropping on a bigger mind whatever you want to call it the higher consciousness beyond the intuitive response is creative response you create something that never existed before. New context, new meaning, new way of managing relationships. Basically, new story. The old story dies and the new story is born. And beyond the creative response is the higher guidance response, where you incorporate your mentors, your heroes, your heroines into your body as your incarnation. And then beyond that is something called the sacred response, which means you don't have to do anything, you just show up. And your presence does the whole job. You have to do nothing. (laughs) It's called do less and accomplish more. Ultimately, do nothing and accomplish everything.
1: Why do you think we are so stuck being a slave to busyness and being a slave to our automatic thoughts?
2: It begins early in childhood, in the first three or four years. If your parents were unhappy, if they were always condemning, criticizing, complaining, playing the victim, not just parents, your caretakers, your schoolmates, or whatever, the immediate environment, but usually parents, then you grow up to be an unhappy person. On the other hand, if your parents were looking for opportunities in the midst of adversity, or they were practicing what I call the four A's, attention, which means deep listening, affection, deep caring, appreciation, deep gratitude, and acceptance, not trying to change you or change anything about you because you're perfect with all your imperfections, then you grow up to be a happy person. And unfortunately, that recycles. You know, abusive parents end up with abusive children who become abusive parents. It's epigenetic. Now we even know the mechanisms of this. And therefore, it's hard to break the cycle because most people aren't even aware of it. But once you become aware of it, you can break the cycle through everything that we talk about in the book.
1: Well, you talk about the curve of evolution and how we actually can have accelerated evolution through this idea of gaining far more consciousness. When did this idea first arrive to you? And what do you find to be the most important thing for people to understand about accelerated evolution?
2: Well, you look at some people who are extraordinary in one aspect of their life like mozart or you know geniuses creative genius einstein there are people who are born with a certain gift and and they've excelled at it but that doesn't mean that they are whole you know just because they're genius in one aspect that doesn't mean they have wholeness of evolution evolution happens when you become aware that it's the only way to evolve for human beings right now, is to evolve in the expansion of their consciousness and into full self-awareness. The self that we call the soul is part of the divine. So ultimately it is actually evolving all the way to the mystery of our existence and then resting in that mystery. There's nothing more beautiful. If there was no mystery, what's the point of existence, right? So (laughs) the fact that we exist should be a perpetual surprise to us. And yet we take our existence for granted. We think, oh, this is normal. But how is it normal? You know, right now, if you look at the open question in science, the only thing scientists agree about is that the universe arises from nothing. So what is this nothing? Is it your true self? Is this, Rumi, the great Sufi poet said, we come spinning out of nothingness, scattering stars like dust. Look at these worlds spinning out of nothingness. This is you. So your true evolution starts when you become aware of the difference between belief and faith. Belief can be a cover up for insecurity. If I asked you, uh, you believe in electricity? You'd say that's ridiculous. I'm using it right now on my computer and these lights. I don't have to believe in it. So belief can be a thought that you hold to be true because you want it to be true. On the other hand, faith is the absolute certainty of the invisible in you, without which. There is no visible possible. The invisible makes the visible possible. And that invisible is your soul, is your presence, is your awareness, is your consciousness.
1: You touch upon secondhand beliefs, which I thought was really interesting. And how would you describe secondhand beliefs?
2: So secondhand beliefs are recycled thoughts that people hold to be true. Your parents, your family, your community, your, it's the hypnosis of social conditioning. So one way to tackle that is by asking yourself, is this belief true? How do I know it's true? What is it doing to me right now holding on to this belief? Who would I be if I didn't have this belief? So this is cognitive therapy and a popular version of it. And then there's something called awareness-based cognitive therapy that actually you are aware that every thought you have normally is recycled social constructs that's not original. Very rarely do people have creative thoughts, and that's called freedom from karma. So the more aware you become, the more you question your beliefs, and the more you practice mindful awareness, they slowly get dismantled.
1: One thing I did find really interesting to your point about cognitive behavioral therapy is that actually the success of cognitive behavioral therapy is actually quite low. And one thing you talk about is being connected to the consciousness of bliss is more beneficial, arguably, than exploring, in your words, the dark forests of our consciousness. I guess, first of all, just to clarify, what does it mean to be in bliss consciousness? And second of all, like, why is it more effective than exploring our shadows?
2: You know, this is not a new idea. In Christian traditions, they say, seek the kingdom of heaven first and everything else comes to you. So the kingdom of heaven, of course, is not some castle in the sky. It's a state of consciousness. And so, too, the Eastern wisdom traditions say the same thing. Seek the highest first and everything else will come to you. So what is the highest? The highest is our fundamental state of joy, not happiness. Happiness is always for a reason, and happiness and sadness go together. One day you're happy, one day you're sad. It's a mental activity. Joy is independent of both happiness and unhappiness. You have to look at a baby to see what joy is. You know, unless it's wet or unless it's hungry, when it says, ah, and the mother hopefully responds with attention and affection. The baby is full of joy and has no reason. It's full of curiosity, full of wonder. The other day I was in Miami and I was actually taking the train to baggage claim. Everybody was stressed. People were wearing masks. They were screaming at each other. There was a mother with a pram, and she also looked harassed. She was on the phone. And this little baby was trying to catch my eyes. And finally, we locked our eyes into each other, and he gave the most glorious smile that would have changed the world. That is fundamental bliss. We were born with it. There's an Indian sage who said, every child that is born is proof that God has not yet given up on human beings. So we just need to go back to that state of innocence. And that state of innocence is really the state of grace, a state of, of um, being connected to generosity of spirit and wonder and surrender to the unknown. It's not the unknown we should fear child doesn't Mm. a baby doesn't fear the unknown it is the known we should fear because the known is the prison of past karma if we can step into the unknown we live and breathe and move in the unknown anyway pretending it's the known so that's freedom and that's bliss and that's fundamental so instead of going bottom up we go top down
1: Why do you think we're so addicted to needing this illusion of certainty?
2: Again, hypnosis of social conditioning. There's nothing uh, certain, not even the weather. I mean, if I asked you, can you predict what you'll be thinking about tomorrow, Tuesday, or Wednesday at 12 noon? The answer is no. Do you know what you were thinking, feeling last Tuesday? answer is no. Unless it was somebody proposed to you and they opened a bottle of champagne, then you might remember that. But do you remember what happened on your eighth birthday? The answer is no. So why not live in the present, which is the only moment that never ends?
1: Another part of the book that had me in deep thoughts was this idea of talking about blaming and how we so easily move into a blaming state, especially within relationships. And you write, blaming comes from the inner child. So I would love to hear your thoughts on this idea of why we get stuck in blaming and what really blaming is.
2: Yes, so that inner child that blames That experience starts around three or four when the ego starts to dominate. So what happens is, I'll give you an example. You're a little boy or a girl, usually boys, but girls too. And you're out with your mother at the shopping mall and you ask for a lollipop. And she says, no. So the first thing you do is you throw a tantrum. So that's being nasty and manipulative. If she doesn't listen to you, then you change tactics. You say, um, mommy, I love you so much, please buy me a lollipop. So instead of being nasty and manipulative, you become nice and manipulative. Um, (laughs) Then, if that doesn't work, you come home and she can't find you, you're in the closet. And um, she says, where are you? You say, leave me alone, I don't want to talk to you. Become stubborn and withdrawn that's the third ego drama if that doesn't work then you uh, say to her well you're nice to my brothers and sisters you're not nice to me and you try and make her feel guilty and blame her and at this point she's fed up so she buys you the lollipop and your little Um, inner child says it works. And then you become an expert at it. And by the time you're eight years old, you're emotionally right there. And the only qualification is you can run for president in the United States of America.
1: Oh, my God, this is so (laughs) so
2: wild. Look at all the leaders in the world. They're eight-year-old emotionally undeveloped male gangsters, most of them.
1: How do you cope if a partner or someone close to you is stuck in their eight year old blaming self? How does one remain in their center?
2: There's something called nonviolent communication, which was popularized by a, a person called Marshall Ro- Rosenberg, which goes through four things What am I observing? What am I feeling? What do I need? How do I request the fulfillment of my needs? You can ask the other person too. What are you observing? What are you feeling? What do you need? How can I help you? Now, if the person is slightly mature, they'll respond. If they're not, then they're not the right person in your life.
1: I love nonviolent communication. And again, if this was taught in schools about how to communicate in conflict, we would live in an extremely different world. I love how you write about that someone in love is very similar actually to a sports star getting a goal. And so how can people understand that in their own lives? How can we be in that state of infatuation with our own life?
2: Look at people who are in love in the first stages of love, they listen to each other with deep attention. They appreciate each other's uniqueness offer each other unbounded affection and love and show it through actions, and they accept each other notwithstanding their weaknesses. These are the four A's that make for a meaningful relationship. And these four A's apply to yourself also, listen to your deeper self, appreciate the uniqueness that you have, love yourself, not your self image, love yourself as you are and you know it's good to have weaknesses and strengths at the same time it would be very boring if you had only positive qualities who would you'd be exasperatingly positive (laughs) so to have both positive and negative qualities makes a person interesting don't try to change yourself you're enough as you are you know i am enough is a theme that runs through the book
1: yes and again I Am Enough has been kind of like deeply popularized by wellness culture. And yet someone like me who even works in the industry is sometimes even questioning what even does that mean? And so I love the, again, like the practical nature of this book.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello, Fresh! Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com.
1: Let's get this dinner party started. Where well, you really kind of get to the like the seed of how do we have that I am enough consciousness, and I guess. At this moment in time, people are so distressed. They watch the news and they're in a state of fight or flight the entire time. What are your thoughts about, aside from just, you know, switching off the news, what is your advice for coping with this deeply connected modern world that we're living in, which feels so unnatural and yet we have to now evolve?
2: Yes. So, you know, if you don't watch the news, you're uninformed. And if you watch the news, you're misinformed. <laughs> so we are in a right. very, very unfortunate position right now. But you know, as we move into what is being called the metaverse, and I'm thinking that you know, with all these blockchain economies coming up and distributed um, information networks, um, you should be able to create your own ecosystem of sharing what you call values. Now, during the pandemic, I was interviewing an English uh, actress. She's actually English, French, and Mauritius, a little bit of Indian. Her sister was a recording artist and she died from suicide. So, you know, the person I was interviewing, Gabriella Wright, she was on a mission to help prevent this big tragedy. Right now, suicide is the second most common cause of death among teens. Every 40 seconds, somebody in the world is dying from suicide. And we are unaware of this great pandemic and our humanity is incomplete. So we actually created a website called neveralone.love, where teens especially speak to uh, emotional AI. Her name is Pee-wee, It was the name of the recording artist who died, Gabriella's sister. People are more comfortable talking to a machine than they're talking to a human being. Just tells you about our humanity, especially teens because they don't feel judged. So far, PV has intervened in over 6,000 suicide ideations. She's talking to 16 million people. So I think that'll be the future. Uh, we can't depend on special interest groups because news, the more melodramatic it is, the more it sells. So it's not news anymore, it's opinion. And it's driven by money. You follow where the money goes.
1: Lastly, what would be your advice to every 16-year-old who's starting to make their way in the world, starting to think independently? If there was one message, what would it be?
2: Don't rush to conform. If you rush to conform, you'll be like everybody else. Be original. Trust yourself and know your values and go stand up to your truth no matter who ridicules you and you will ultimately be successful because success depends on those who are willing to question the status quo and there's no better time to do that when you're 16 anyway
1: thank you so much dr Chopra. this was brilliant and thank you for writing such an excellent book i will put links to the show notes and of course all of your socials but thank you so much
2: Thank you, Poppy. It was a pleasure to be with you.
1: Thank you for listening. It would be a huge support if you wouldn't mind rating, subscribing, and sharing this podcast. I also would love to hear from you. So please find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram, DM me, and I would love to hear your thoughts on any of the topics that we discuss download happy not perfect my app that's designed to boost your mood and help you sleep and give you mindfulness in less than five minutes it's packed full of science-backed tools and rituals to give your mind the care it needs sending lots of love and energy see you next time